of the chapter or even the half of a chapter. So this will probably take us three different weeks to get through this chapter possibly, which is not always the case. Um, but there's a lot here. Uh, now think back. It's been a few weeks to Revelation chapter 10 uh, when John was directed to prophesy more. He had further that God had for him to prophesy. And so now we're going to witness the content of this, this prophecy in a series of visions that are going to begin in chapter 12 and really extend through chapter 15. So it's the beginning of this new section tonight. Uh, in our text, John is going to shift perspective. And if you were reading through, you'd probably feel it. But since there's been a gap, you may not. So I'll, but I want to mention it. This is a new perspective that is cosmic. What is going on behind the scenes? What is God doing um, in, these, in the great spiritual realm? Um, this prophecy begins with a great battle, but it's a spiritual battle. As we look through it, that's going to become pretty evident because, it, again, it feels very strange to us as we read through it. Let's read it together, these first six verses, Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. As we begin, just stepping back a little bit and trying to understand sort of the nature of what we're reading here, it might be helpful to note that although this sounds very strange to us, lots of heads and diadems and this great battle that's going on, uh, this actually would have been pretty straightforward to the ancient audience. They would have had a pretty, you know, familiar category to this. Do you know why that is? What, what, what would they have been familiar with in this way? You know, it sounds very strange to us. It sounds like something we see on a sci-fi movie or something. But it would have fit in just fine with them. Did you have a thought? No? Well, that's right. Now, I wasn't going to use the word mythology because it could be misunderstood, but that's exactly right. It's a great epic. This is a genre of literature that they had. Um, this, this, it's, a, it's a way of telling stories, usually about very big and weighty matters. Um, it might be uh, telling about how a civilization arose or how the earth was created or things like that. But it's these great epics that would have been familiar in Egyptian literature and Mesopotamia and in, certainly in Greco-Roman. They would have heard these stories. Uh, even if this wasn't very Jewish, uh, it, was, it was very much in the air around them living in the Greco-Roman world. And so these stories, again, are telling these grand things. John is going to use this. That doesn't mean, when we use the word myth, that doesn't mean false. That doesn't mean fake. Um, but what it is is sort of this, this genre. But John is going to reveal a cosmic battle taking place within the background of human history. And so he uses this genre because of really just the nature of what he's describing here is ultimately my, my thoughts. As we look at these first couple verses, verses 1 and 2, this woman seems to represent the people of God. Uh, not only the church, 
but the people of God across the ages. So in the Old Covenant and in the New, all of the, the people of God. Because this, this actually, this story is stretching out longer than just sort of what's going to happen at the eschaton itself. The Bible very often refers to God's people as his bride. If we had time, we could look at Isaiah 54, verse 5. We could look at Jeremiah chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 16, Hosea chapter 2, and on and on. In fact, we could even see the same thing in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 21, we'll get there eventually. So this, this woman, again, representing the people of God, presumably, notice in the text she's suffering labor pains which also seems to point to her representing the people of God because we see them characterized in the same way in the Old Testament. Israel was said to suffer labor pains before the redemption while they're, while they're waiting, while they're waiting for the Lord to, to redeem them and deliver them. But this woman and her offspring, as we're going to see, are going to face significant opposition. And that's the, the climax, the story that we're seeing here. In verses 3 through 4, this great dragon comes to oppose the woman and her child. Um, look at the image that we're given here. Look back at verse 3. This great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads are seven diadems. Again, every once in a while you'll see these tried, tried to be depicted in a painting or in an artist's rendering, and it's always quite bizarre looking. I don't think we're intended to see it in that way exactly. Usually these things have... Um, significance in terms of, of their symbolism. We don't need to go into all of that. Sometimes we do, not tonight. But, but this, is, this is Satan, this great dragon that we're seeing here. And if you glance down to verse 9, you'll see that more clearly. We'll get to that next week in terms of seeing the name, but, but that's who this is. This is the great adversary of the ages. This is Satan. This is the devil. And what we see here is that he is not impotent. He is powerful. But we shouldn't expect that his power is sort of limited to these grand displays. Again, it feels incredible to think of this great being and all this. But this is not what Satan does merely in sort of some grand display. But this is describing what Satan does all the time throughout history and the way he opposes the things of God. Revelation shows us that the devil himself is the great adversary of human history. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, that he is the source of evil. Going back to that discussion we had at the beginning during the announcements, uh, that ultimately Satan is behind the disruption and the pain in this world. Thus, we call him the evil one. It's funny, the evil one in English, the evil one, is three words. In, in the original language, it's just one. It's just, it's, it's just one word that describes Satan very often, even what we see in the Lord's Prayer. The devil stands at the head of what we're ultimately going to see. We're going to see the beast. We're going to see the false prophet. We're going to see the harlot. But, but what we're going to see here is that Satan is sort of the basis. He's the foundation. He stands at the head. And these other things are going to flow out of, I was going to say his ministry. That wouldn't work. But out of his evil work, his evil ministry, if you will. So as we go through chapter 13, 14, and 15, we'll see these things following. And then they're ultimately answered in opposite, working their way back to Satan. Greg Beale, a commentator, makes a really compelling word of application as we realize who and what we're dealing with here. He says this, Readers must know, if they compromise, thinking compromising in their faith, they're not compromising merely with the world, but with the devil himself. This realization should shock them, that is the readers, out of any degree of spiritual complacency. So just because we, we don't see Satan's face, we don't see Satan's hand, we don't see Satan's voice, 
Now, the idea here, and I think this is an important point for us, this is what is going beyond behind evil in the world. This is what's going on behind disruption. This is, we can think even specific, this is what's going on behind terrorism. This is what's going on behind abortion. This is what's going on behind gang violence. And we can just walk on down through here. We see it only in natural terms, don't we? We, we see the drug epidemic as a family problem, and it is. We see the drug, drug epidemic as an issue, you know, okay, we think about the practical, how do the drugs get here, and how do we physically stop them? And I think we should do those things. But we have to realize that there is something more sinister beneath these things. And, and if we miss that, we miss, honestly, the true power that is at work. The book of Revelation reminds us that, that there is something evil going on behind the scenes, and Satan is ultimately the root of it. Look at what he does here in the text uh, in verse 4. Satan sweeps a, a third of the stars of heaven to earth. Now, now listen to this. This, this might well be... Oh, what, uh, let me just say it this way. The, what we often call the fall of Satan and ultimately the fall of the evil angels, that might be what we're seeing here. Those angels that would join Satan in his rebellion. We have one or two other references to this in the Bible. One in Job, possibly. One clearly in the book of Matthew. Jesus speaks of it himself in Matthew 25, 41, that speaks of Satan and his angels very explicitly. And so what do we usually call Satan's angels? Demons, right? His minions, those who are doing his work. So Satan himself is not always the one hands-on doing things, but his, his, his sort of his lieutenants and his, his soldiers are out there doing his bidding. And so that might be what this is describing here, a third of the angels following Satan in this way. But, but just as a side point, and I say that to say I think this is important, that that's very possibly what we're seeing here. But much of what we think we know about Satan really comes from passages like this. Very vague, a little bit unclear. Um, and they're usually under the interpretation of the early church fathers. So those who were writing in the first three to four, at most five centuries of the church, they, they wrote all kinds of things and reflected on all kinds of things. And those things, many of those things really become sort of canon in the church um, and are popularized and, and, and taken down through the church. And we should, I think, pay careful attention to them because very often they're right. Um, but some of these things are really, these are interpretations that come down to us through the church fathers. Um, but yet, again, I, I say that to say this is possibly what we're seeing here, but it's not ultimately clear. In other words, I wouldn't take that to the bank and cash it, but that's very possibly what we're seeing here. What we do know is very clearly what's going on in terms of Satan, um, his minions, and that reference that is very clear in Matthew 25, 41, the word of Jesus. Very often, and that's just another thought, very often there are portions of the Bible that are more clear in referencing something else that help clarify it. Um, but with some of these things, at the end of the day, God has just chose not to reveal some of these things to us clearly. Um, why would he? You know, what, what, why would we need to know more about Satan than we do? What we know is what we need to know, and it's It's alarming. As we get to verses 5 and 6, well, let me pause there. That, that's some heavy stuff. Any thoughts, questions about some of that? Maybe, maybe you've got, hey, I always heard about this growing up, and I wonder you know, what that means. Any, any of those Any questions or insights? I think this is, this is some pretty heavy stuff. Okay. As we uh, look at verses 5 and 6, the, the child is born to be a ruler. Not just any ruler, not just a, a king of a, of a country, 
but a ruler, it says, over the nations. Well, again, if it's pretty clear for us to know who we're talking about in terms of the adversary, it becomes very clear who we're talking about here. This is the son of David. This is Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. I would encourage you, maybe in your quiet time this week, go read Psalm chapter 2. Read all the psalms, but read Psalm chapter 2, perhaps reflecting on this. There in it, um, it presents the Davidic Messiah, the one who would come in the line of David, as ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. I think John is drawing from that here. Uh, it's particularly Psalm 2, 9. Um, and that same reference really goes back to something earlier that we saw in Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches, Revelation 2, verse 27, just for reference. So this dragon wants to slay the child, the son. He knows that this child could destroy him. And so there's fear uh, and there's sort of a panic and, and an aggression here. Uh, it's, it's this really stirring scene. Does, it, does, does this ring any uh, bells? Does it remind you of any, anything else we see in the scriptures? I think of Jesus' infancy narrative, Matthew chapter 2, Right? When Herod wants to kill Jesus in his infancy, out of fear. The Jews say that their king has been born. He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm the king of the Jews. And he's afraid of a baby. And yet he's ultimately killing all kinds of children, ultimately trying to get to uh, Jesus, this, this king of the Jews, that was ultimately being talked about by all the populace. This is what's going on cosmically behind the scenes, and very possibly even in this particular scene with Herod. I mean, at the very least, we have to say that Herod was, what Herod was doing was demonic, to slaughter innocent children, ultimately out of fear and pride, ultimately to hold on to his position. Perhaps this is even a reference to that. Uh, a lot of commentators think that it is, and it very well may be. But what we see here is this, this, this um, that the child is rescued from the dragon, and there's, there's sort of, if this is referring to Jesus' infancy, it ultimately there's sort of a, it leaps to ultimately his exaltation, which it clearly is what's going on here. He's, he's exalted to God's throne. Think about this. When Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered the power of death, the consequence of sin. And he rose to sit at the Father's right hand in glory and in power. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, the woman, figuratively here, is, is she's fleeing into the wilderness where the Lord cares for her. It gives her a place to be, to be cared for tenderly. And I think all the more this reinforces that she's symbolizing God's people in this way. Because that is really just a theme all the way throughout Revelation. Things are rough. Things might get rougher. Things will get rougher at this point, And yet God will always preserve his people. God will comfort his people. God is near to his people. The wilderness, I think, just represents just that, life in this present evil age, what Jesus very often called it, this, this evil age. While we await Christ's return, we are sojourners in this world. And if we miss that, if we get that wrong, we get Christianity wrong. We must understand, no matter what country we live in, no matter what socioeconomic background we come from, no matter what race we are, we are sojourners in this world. This is so key uh, in the New Testament. It is key in Jesus' own life. He said, I have nowhere to lay my head. Now, there's, there's so many themes that, that ultimately come together to give us this picture of the sojourner, as well as very explicit statements, for instance, in 1 Peter. 
Uh, notice here, this, you might be like, well, this is a really specific number here, right? That 1,260 days. Well, this represents the time, and we, we explained this in, back in chapter 11, so I won't go into all the detail. It's in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. You'll see those same references. This seems to represent the time between Christ's resurrection, where we live in between here, and his return. And so there's this period, this 1,260 days, uh, if you do the math, you find out that's the same thing again. Actually, maybe just glance back to chapter 12, or chapter 11, rather. Uh, in verse 2, it refers to 42 months, right? Which equals, and then go down to verse 3, 1260 days. And so these three and a half years, ultimately, um, this period. Again, I think it's symbolic here in this way, this period between Christ's resurrection and his return. The conflict here with the devil ultimately, as I said, goes, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Here we see that the opposition from this cosmic perspective uh, given to us in this very strange sort of epic way and yet is describing reality. A reality that we don't see with our physical eyes but which is very much real. We live in a world, even for us Christians who believe in the supernatural and believe in the Bible and believe that Jesus rose from the dead and so on and so forth, because of the culture we live in, we can be very just naturalistic. You know, if we don't see it, feel it, taste it, smell it, we, we forget that it even exists, right? And yet the scriptures remind us, no, no, there is so much more going on. It was interesting. Uh, I was in a meeting yesterday. No, no, no. Tuesday. Yeah, yesterday. With, um, well, I won't tell you any details other than the fact that it was a really, really long Zoom meeting. I'm on the board at this place. And uh, one of the brothers prayed. This is a Christian organization, for the most part, a Christian organization. Um, and he's praying about, you know, uh, a lot of supernatural things. You know, the, the devil and this and the way God is doing this and so on. So I mean, he was really fervent brother, really giving into it. And I could tell that made some people in the meeting, there's a Zoom meeting of about 40 people. Some of them kind of maybe a little uncomfortable the way he was praying. And it's just a reminder to me that, like, we don't often speak that way. These spiritual realities, when, when we get sick, maybe we're sick because it's just, you know, an infection or whatever, but, but not always. You know, when, when we face opposition, when we face persecution, we must, we must not always ascribe these things to the devil. I think that's another error. But at the same time, we must remember that we have an enemy who is opposed to God, to his plan, and thus to you. But we're assured here, ultimately, the comfort that's given to us in this text is that God will care for his people. It's easy for us to, to worry during this earthly pilgrimage. There are trials that we go through. There are questions that we have. But our king holds victory in his hand. Our, our future is secure with Christ. Come what may, if you are in Christ, he holds you in his hand. And as he says in John chapter 10, none will be lost. In Revelation, the Holy Spirit really is pulling back the curtain to allow us to see here in really vivid color what is going on cosmically, spiritually, behind the scene. And let's not forget that there is this war going on, that we have an enemy, but yet, even as we take that seriously, even as we want to be in prayer, we want to have a sense of, of, of sobriety and care about this, we know that his end is coming. We'll get there soon. And we know that our end is secure. And that's our comfort. And that's the word that we offer to the world who is still out there without hope. Any, any final thoughts or insights, questions from what we've looked at here in these six verses?
and body. Okay. Well, God willing, we'll come back to this next week and look at verse 7 and, and following. And, uh, and as I said, occasionally we might take a break here and there, but once we get into this section from 12 through 15, there's going to be a lot of this sort of thing, so we probably won't be able to move as quickly. Uh, and yet I think it's important, rather than sort of rushing through, that we are able to take some time and really get a grasp of what's going on. Let me say a word of prayer for us as we close. Heavenly Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters that are here. I pray your blessing over them. Keep them safe. Lord, as we're reminded tonight, Lord, it's not only um, a virus, Lord, that I, we should be praying for. It's not only a job. It's not only a sickness. It's not only this or that, these things that we pray for that are important and that matter. And yet, Lord, I pray, God, that you would protect them from the evil one. I pray, God, that they would not do things or put themselves in situations, God, that would welcome, God, those things. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, God, that you would give us uh, eagerness and, and drive, God, to pursue the righteousness that we're learning about in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen this church and its ministries. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great night.